Welcome to Muslims Doing Things, a podcast about extraordinary Muslims and their career journeys. Today, we have Amna Nawaz. Amna, what do you do? I am a journalist. I am currently the co-anchor at the PBS NewsHour. Fantastic. At some point, I think that's everybody's dream job is to be a news anchor. So I'm excited to hear how <laughs> you got true? there. I don't I think know so. I think true. I'm a marine biologist and like somebody on the news. I mean, this is purely anecdotal. I've looked at no research, but I'm, I'm, I'll stand by it. I'll go with that. I want to believe that's true. I hope that's true. Yeah, I, I, I stand by it. So Amna, um, where were you born? Tell me about you. I was born in Alexandria, Virginia. Um, I grew up here most of my life, actually live in Alexandria now. We moved back a few years ago and yeah, I'm the middle of three girls. We are first generation Americans. My parents moved to the States from Pakistan in the seventies and our life was kind of a split existence. I think a lot of first generation kids know, right? We lived most of the school year in Virginia, went to school, had great friends, great community, played sports, you know, went to brownies, sold Girl Scout cookies, all of those things. And then in the summer, we would move back to Pakistan and we would live <laughs> mostly in Lahore, but we traveled around and, and saw family all over and knew how to act and conduct ourselves in Pakistan, you know, spoke Urdu or Shalarkamizas. And, and that was our life was kind of living between those two worlds. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. My parents also came in the 60s and the 70s, my dad the 60s, my mom the 70s. And we had a very similar upbringing where um, we were clearly kind of from there. We would go back there. My language was solidified there. Yeah. We traveled a lot to Iraq specifically. And now I have my own kids and I like I, – I mourn a little bit the fact that that isn't their life. Like at this point, they're second-generation American. Their summers are playing soccer and, yeah. you know, do, doing very American things, which is great. I love my identity, but that that third – culture is now maybe what a fourth culture, you know, it's kind of disappearing. Yeah. So it's interesting because it, it's quite different, frankly, like most Iraqis, I would say numbers wise came after the wars and my parents didn't come as a result of a war. They came in search of opportunity, more of a bit classic American story. Um, so it is different. It, it's interesting because I, I actually am encountering less and less people with a background like mine these days. Yeah, it's very true. I have the same similar uh, sort of sense of a little bit of grief. My kids are not growing up the way that I did, but they have their own beautiful existence that they're going to navigate and figure out and define for themselves. They also, you know, my husband is Caucasian. They're biracial. They're being raised in a multi-faith home. Like they will carve out their own path in the same way that my sisters and I did. But I'm really grateful for the chance that I had to grow up the way that I did because I wouldn't be the person I am without it. I mean, I, I wouldn't oh, know yeah. my language. I wouldn't know my culture. I wouldn't know where my ancestors are buried. I wouldn't have all of those parts that define so much of me um, and also learn to exist in those worlds and be comfortable in both those spaces, right? Because when, this is another thing a lot of first generation kids know, right? You're in Pakistan or you're in your parents' home country and they look at you and see an American and then you're here <laughs> and everyone's like, where are you from? Like that's the first question yeah. they ask you. And that, you know, that too, that's, that's a defining informative experience in the way we were raised. Yeah, absolutely. And and it seems like it's limited to our generation and our particular time of being raised, which is also an interesting insight we could, you know, go on and on about. But yeah. so you you're raised in Alexandria. Yep. Um and as you're growing up and you kind of was was it a bit of a tradition immigrant story where you were raised and your parents were like school, school, school? Like how did you kind of get to the point in which you realized you wanted to use your voice for change? And and of course, like I'm already sure within your story there's gonna be some element of like you know, being, I, I think you're a millennial, something like that, right? So like somebody who was raised effectively when our narrative as a community was being developed. Um, so I'm curious to hear your journey and, and why you chose what you chose. Because if my kid chose to be a journalist, it's very different 
sequence of events that would get her there versus you choosing to be a journalist as somebody who, you know, whose parents came in the 70s and was during 9-11. So I had a lot of, so I'm 43 years old. I was born in 1979. I'm in that weird, like in-between generation where I think we defined our own generation as like exennials or however you say it. Like I'm not Gen X. (laughs) I don't identify with Gen X. I don't understand them. I kind of get some parts of it, but I'm like, that's not me. I don't think I'm millennial. I'm like on the outer edge of an elder millennial. So I'm I'm in this weird space where we kind of made up who we are by ourselves. And so I, you I don't overshare everything you eat on Instagram. I don't. I don't. I probably like I share more. She's not a millennial. Some, She's not. I'm not. I don't overshare. I, I some things I like to keep private. So yes, that's there is that. I, you know, I was raised in in a traditional household in that. It was bilingual. We mostly spoke Urdu in the house. We mostly spoke English outside. It was a mix of English and Urdu in the house. We celebrated Eid. Most of our closest family friends were other Pakistani American families. We were the only parts of, of my family here, though. But um, you know, it wasn't traditional in that my parents. I know there's a stereotype, right, of like the overbearing South Asian parents being like, education is the only thing that matters. Education was important, right? My my parents both had wonderful educations behind them. They always stressed the value of learning and being curious. And books, books were like the greatest gift you could get, right? When we went to Barnes and Noble, they said you can pick out five books. It was like what best day ever. But um, So that was always important. But their other most important lesson was you have to love what you do in this world. You know, my parents were very intentional about carving out their own paths. And in that way, we're maybe not stereotypical at all because they said, we don't care what you do, but you have to love what you do and you have to put your whole self into it. And you have to make things a little bit better than you found them. Like you are so lucky to have all these opportunities and you will always be supported by us in whatever you do but you got to find something that you love and throw yourself into it. And so for each of us, my sisters and I, it was very different. We followed very different paths. Journalism for me was really by chance. And it was really by a confluence of world events that cannot be replicated. And I think in some ways, that's why I say journalism found me. I didn't find journalism. I was always going to go to law school. I thought law school was the path and law school was mainly the path because I didn't know what else to do. I was a politics. <laughs> it's also a distinct marker major. of our generation, right? I was like, "What should I do?" <laughs> that too. Law school, sure. Well, I'm good at talking. I'm very good at fighting. Yes, I loved to argue. I loved <laughs> to write. I, you know, these were all sort of the classic. Everyone tells you you should be a lawyer, so I thought, great. Um, but I didn't want to go straight into law school after undergrad. I just, I didn't love being in a classroom. I loved doing and learning that way rather than sitting and learning that way. And so my parents said, great, take a year, get a job, get some experience. Law school will be there. And I got a one-year fellowship at ABC News Nightline in Washington. And that was in 2001. And it began my very first day in August of 2001. And within this is weeks, where it happens. The world it's, all, it's always that moment. The world, <laughs> it changed. You know, it, it changed. And to be at that age, at that place, at that moment in time in world history, completely, it changed everything for me. And I, I saw just how valuable it was to be able to put good information out in front of people when they were terrified about what was going to happen next. I saw how important it was for someone like me to be part of that conversation. I learned an enormous amount about about myself, about the power of information, about the power of good journalism. And I just, after that day, I could not see myself doing anything else. I just couldn't. And I've been a journalist ever since then. Never went to... And in this... 
<laughs> never went to law school. I, I actually have a similar that that point also happened to me. Never went to law school. Huh. Um, at some point, I really thought I was going to. And so you're spending a year at ABC, and you're in the crux of it. And, and I'd imagine the landscape of people that produced and made things was different. It was probably less diverse back then, right? It was. Suddenly, you're a pariah. Um, you know, you, you can't escape the fact that you are a brown woman in this environment. And w- from there, when that finished, like, were you like, okay, I need to do this again? I need to go find a job? Did you stay with ABC? How did you navigate that decision? Yeah, you know, everything, it's bringing back all those memories of the time I remember. We, we were, like a lot of families, we hung an American flag outside our house, right? You suddenly had to prove how American you were. Yeah. I had a, a prayer ring um, similar to this one that I wear now from from my grandmother then, but it, I, I turned it um, to face inside because even riding mm-hmm. the subway, I noticed people would look at my hand and see huh. the script and kind of give me a strange look. Um, and the whole, where are you from question was you know much more loaded after that. It, it became, it was really difficult. It was really hard. But journalism for me was just, it was like a haven, right? It was, yes, the newsroom was less diverse than there, than newsrooms I've been in since, but it was still a pretty diverse environment for what it was. Nightline as a show, which was led by Ted Koppel, was kind of its own little news bubble and they did things their own way. And there was another senior South Asian uh, woman. She was a British British South Asian woman named Madalika Sika. I'll give a shout out to her who was in the newsroom at the time. So I, I felt like I had someone else to kind of look up to, but I was the only Muslim in the newsroom. And it was a time when we suddenly became enemies of the state. Like this is no longer a place you're just safe and can walk around. And after that, I just thought, I love this too much. This feels too normal. This can't have been the thing that I found right away. Because my generation, we were told you're going to change not just jobs, but careers four to five times over your lifetime. Be prepared for that. And I thought, no way I found something I love right away. So I left after about a year and a half. I moved to London to get my master's, to get some distance. And in that year, the war in Iraq started. And my very first impulse was, I want to be there. Like, I want to go there. I, w- I want to know what's happening. And I just felt like you can't deny that impulse, right? If something keeps telling you this is where you're supposed to be, this is where you're supposed to be. And so I got a job at NBC right after that. I moved to New York and and I never looked back. And when you were at NBC, how did that differ from the one-year job that you had with ABC or a year, year and a half? Yeah. How did the nature of the job change and what were the, were the expectations of the first role versus the second? So my very first job, I was absolute lowest rung on the totem pole, right? Like I was there just to learn and help in any way I can. It was a one year kind of paid fellowship sort of thing. They extended for a while to keep me on board. Um, and so I barely figured out how television works, right? I barely figured out how, how scripts get written and how pieces get edited, but I got to see the absolute best in the business practice their craft every day, which was an incredible, mm-hmm. that set the bar for me, right? To hear the editorial right. discussions, to see how thoughtful people were about putting together stories, about selecting voices, about choosing where to shine their spotlight and hold their microphone. That was, I'm so fortunate to have that as the defining feature for my very first journalism experience. But from then, when I went to NBC, I went into what's sort of a rotating um, fellowship that they had there, which was also a wonderful experience because I worked across every part of the network. I worked in morning television, I worked in long form, I worked on the evening broadcast, and I worked on the political desk. And it was one of those experiences that um, told me, it sort of helps you rule out, right, what you, what you don't think you want to do, and also helped me put a finer point on what I, I did want to do, which was 
serious, impactful journalism. I wanted to work to getting overseas. I felt like my lens had always been much broader than many of my peers growing up the way that I did. And I began as a producer, but I began my path to becoming a foreign correspondent while I was there. Wow. And you know, I when you're telling this story, like you and like many of us after 9-11, I felt this need to kind of over-communicate who I was and what I yeah. wasn't more importantly, but also this like bizarre need to to help, right? Like help straighten up the narrative, help help the lives that have been destroyed, right? And in Iraq, like I was very aware, no, these weren't like random terrorists. These were people whose lives were getting destroyed. I had uncles and aunts and cousins who were displaced. I had an uncle who had a bullet that was left on his front door and he had to literally leave his house overnight, right? And so I actually have this very vivid memory. I went to, I went to when I decided I wasn't going to be a lawyer, I decided I was going to be an architect. So I actually had a few career changes, but they were all before I was like 26. So like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if that's that's how it works now. And so I I, I recall I um, went to architecture school and I actually got a fellowship. I, I applied for a scholarship to go to Iraq and look at some of the architecture there. Um, and I go to my dad I'm like, Baba, I want to go to Baghdad. And he's just like, you know, like things weren't good there. I'm like, no, like we used to go. I'll be fine. He's like, Leila, I'll never understand it. Like me and your mom gave up everything. We gave up everything, everything to get you into safety. And you open your arms and go running back in. Like, help me understand this. I know this right? story. I know this story because I served overseas right? in Pakistan and Afghanistan. And it was probably hardest on my parents. Like it was hard. as supportive as they were and as, as proud as I know they were. I know it was hard for them because to be there as a child running around your family's backyards and going to teas at your auntie's house, that's very different from being there as a working journalist and as a single right. woman, right? So yeah, it was it was hard. And when did that happen? So you're, you're at NBC and at some point NBC, did you kind of like narrow in on what you were going to do? It sounds like you're the jack of all trades and goes from, you know, lowest of the totem pole or probably jack of all trades to you saying, okay, I'm good at this and the organization needs this. Now I'm going to do this. Yeah. Did you figure out at that point you wanted to be a broadcaster it or was, did, you know, how did that happen? I didn't know any other form of journalism, which is also why I'm a terrible example for other people coming up. I'd always loved to write and I had that as, as a skill set that I loved, a craft that I loved. But broadcast to me just felt so potent, right? It felt so stimulating. It felt so... Um, powerful. And even though I'd never studied it, uh, which is rare now in the industry, like most folks come in with some kind of degree in, in the business, I, I just had, um, I was drawn towards it because I saw the power of that narrative, right? When you can see and feel and hear from someone directly in their own words, a person you would otherwise never come across in your life. I just felt like this is the way, this is the way you can build bridges. This is the way we can knit some of these, these lives together. And to your earlier point, you know, of trying to correct some of the narrative, I saw how incomplete a lot of the narratives were at the time. I saw how people were slotted into one box or fit into one lane. And I knew it was more complicated than that because I was more complicated than that. My family was more complicated. Everyone I ever right. knew growing up was more complicated than that. And so I worked a lot in breaking news. I wanted to always be out, like in the middle of things and kind of like organizing chaos. I began as a producer. I was parachuting in and out of big stories. I covered Hurricane Katrina. I, um, 
and covered elections. When I started going overseas, it was more to do work with a lot of the big anchors who were traveling there, Ann Curry in particular, who would make frequent trips to, trips to Pakistan. And I would come along as her associate producer and help think, kind of produce things on the ground. And, and was that because you knew? You knew more than other people knew, so you were selected to do that? I had an understanding. Yeah. I mean, I had yeah. language skills. I, I had good connections. I was able to right. help them move around. We had wonderful journalists on the ground we worked with then, and I did later as well. But it was an asset, right? It was it was a value add I brought to the team. And it was I was happy to use it because I felt like I can help shape some of the stories that are being told. Of course, yeah. yeah. And when I became, um, I started doing more on-camera work. I was sort of filing for MSNBC, which, as you know, is just something happens and they need someone to kind of tell them what's happening over and over again on cable and eventually just kind of shifted there full time. By 2011, I was there running the bureau in Islamabad and also doing Pakistan duty at that time meant also doing Afghanistan duty because our coverage was kind of paired. So I was bouncing between Islamabad and Kabul for about three or four years. And did that mean you actually like lived in the region and you were bouncing back and forth or did you? Well, Layla, this is where it gets interesting. Uh, <laughs> in 2010, I um, married the best man I've ever met in my entire life, uh, Paul Riddell. And uh, he had a job in New York. My job was based in New York as well. So we had a home in New York and I got this job, which was to me the dream job at the time. And because I'd married the best person I've ever known, he said, you got to do it. I will be here. We will make it work, but you have to do this. And so for those next three or four years, the first three or four years of my marriage, I spent about eight or nine months of every year on the road. And I would just be gone for a month or six weeks and I'd come home for a week or two weeks and I'd be gone and I'd come back and we just made it work. And, um, you know, we learned to communicate very, very well, very early on, yeah. which has absolutely been an asset in our marriage. But it was uh, both a testament to him and how much he treated my own dreams like his own dreams to say, you, you got to go do this. Um, and also a testament to our marriage. We made it work. We made it work. Yeah. No, it's it's a familiar story. Um, the first two years of my marriage, I, I mentioned before the show, this is an episode where we hadn't met each other, so we kind of got an opportunity to connect before the show, and I mentioned to you that I'd founded a tech company. Um, our first two years, I was distanced too. Around, mind you, I wasn't in like a war zone. I was in Cambridge, <laughs> Massachusetts, and he was in Los Angeles for 12 months of the year, and we were going back and forth. But you're not wrong, wow. but it definitely like, I think in any of these, in any of these journeys, when there's a partner in the mix, yeah. the journey is always better when the partner is supportive. And the journey may not percent. be possible without a supportive partner. A thousand. And by the way, whether it's like London or Kabul or LA and Cambridge, like distance is distant. You're not together. Distance is distance. You're not you're not, together. You're not, you're not together. Yeah. No, we we I moved back when I was eight months pregnant. So we learned to be newlyweds with a newborn, oh you know, which is oh. <laughs> so like, you know, there's a lot, a lot you're learning really quick and it's definitely a sacrifice. Right. And yeah. I think that, um, so you're, you were kind of going back and forth. Uh, that was a bad time. It was a bad time. Like in Afghanistan, it was a bad time. It's unfortunately still a bad time in Afghanistan. Um, I, I don't know about Pakistan as much as Afghanistan, but it, it was a hard time and there was danger associated with it. Did you, at that point, I mean, you could have decided to make foreign correspondence the rest of your life. Like, how did you kind of navigate what you want to report on 
And what were the decisions that you made or were you like, I have this opportunity now, I'm just going to be really freaking good at it and make sure people recognize the quality of my work? So every job I've ever taken, I've always said, this is the thing, I'm going to throw myself into it. Like I want to be an expert at this thing. And uh, I think that's helped me along the way because I get hyper-focused. I was a college athlete and I have this mindset of like, this is the challenge in front of me. This is the thing I need to master. And so I just kind of head down, barrel through, like, this is it. And I did that with that job, which I think is what made me really good at it, was that I was able to just hyper-focus and say, this is what I need to do and throw myself into it and, and assume and hope as an eternal optimist, the rest will kind of work out. It will fall into place. It was a busy time. In Pakistan in particular, there'd been a ramp up in domestic terrorist attacks. So there was that, like both to cover, but also to manage in terms of my family being worried about me. Um, the, the worst of it, um, and this is something we say among foreign correspondents and correspondents who travel a lot, like it's, it's hard in the field, but it's always harder to be the one at home worrying, worrying about you in the field. Huh. And when it was true, it was absolutely true. There was a day uh, I was going on like a military helicopter trip with the Pakistan military. We were traveling up to the northwest of the country, and my husband and I kept in touch very regularly. But he knew I was going to be on a helicopter. I was traveling to this region, and that was it. I was going to be out of touch for a while just because of the connectivity there. I had a sat phone, and that was it. But while I'm in the air, I can't talk to him. And he was manning, you know, he's also a journalist, he was on the news desk back in his job. And during that time, that he knew I was traveling, he got an alert about a helicopter crash in the northwest oh, of the country. Oh and gosh! For you know the three or four hours I was out of touch, and he wasn't able to reach me. He had to wrestle with the idea that I may have died, and he had no way of reaching me, and no way of reaching anyone. And it wasn't until you know I got back and could phone him on the sat phone and say I'm okay, and heard the relief in his voice that I realized what he'd been going through. And I think cumulatively, all of those moments and all of the many stresses, um, and also the idea that I was making my way through my career, I was getting better at what I was doing, and then I was starting to think about what's next. You know, by the end of about three and a half years or so, I was starting to think, okay, can we do this for many, many more years? And I think the answer was very clearly no. In many ways... Yeah fate intervened. Um, and maybe perhaps a little earlier than we planned, uh, I, I was expecting and our first child. And we hadn't told anyone else yet. It was just Paul and I who knew, but I was still going back and forth between Pakistan and Afghanistan. And I did one last military embed when I was about three and a half, about four months pregnant and went into North Waziristan, which was at the time sort of the hub of Taliban activity and Al-Qaeda activity in, in the area. And the flag jacket was starting to fit a little differently. And I felt <laughs> awful all the time. And I had guards with me in Afghanistan. I started to think it's not fair for me to ask them to keep both me and my unborn child safe. Like that's a lot. They do so much. They sacrifice so much already. And also, is it fair to this child that I'm doing this? I don't know. We had a lot of serious conversations after that, and I, I pulled back from traveling overseas and made my last few trips after my daughter was born when she was just a toddler. And that was the end of that chapter, the chapter I'm so, so grateful for, but it had its time and its place in my life. And I can understand entirely how and why a child would change your perspective on it. I think that, you know, I, I say this all the time, like I... um 
I spend a lot of time on TikTok and I recently did a TikTok about how I had my kids, all three kids, three of my kids in my 30s. I'm in my 30s right now. And um, it was kind of like uh, the pros and cons of having your kids in your 30s. Mm. And one of the things is like, there's no way, there's no way I could have built this company with a kid. There's just no way. There's no way I could have built this company with a kid. Like I was traveling back and forth. My first pregnancy with Camila, my first trimester, I did 20 flights. 20 flights. It's crazy. Like I was implementing customers. I was doing this. I was doing that. Oh my gosh. And now three kids in, my youngest is 10 months. I have a trip in like a month and I'm like, how am I going to do this? Yeah. Like two days. That struggle like, oh my is goodness. real. Yes. Oh, how, how, I actually have like three trips. I hope my husband's not listening to this episode because I haven't told him Because he doesn't know. I have you. like three trips over <laughs> the next like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, like please someone make this work and all three of them wake up at some point. So like the dynamics just change and kind of- Everything changes. What, everything changes. Um, you know, and it's not a bad thing to your point. It's just that some things- have to happen at different points in life. And yeah. so you finish that, um, you decide you want to do something maybe closer to home. Um, did you stay with your network or how did you decide what the next steps were going to be? Did. And did you find yeah. that being a foreign correspondent gave you more opportunity? You know, it's tough. There's there's a couple of things at play here. One is that it's very difficult for institutions of power to see you differently than they've all, always seen you. Like and- actors. It's like similar. Actors. You have a, it's like actors. Like, you know, it's like a lot of institutions, I think, especially it's when It's like you Adam are... Sandler becoming a romantic boy. Like that's what you had to do to convince we the world that you're Adam Sandler Adam becoming a romantic. Sandler and I have very similar career paths. I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a challenge. I think it's particularly acute when you are one of few people like you in an institution because – um, in a sense, you have to define yourself for other people before they define you for you. Uh, and, and the power is going one way in that relationship. And so I think it was very easy for a lot of people to see, you know, the brown lady in brown countries reporting on brown people, that's, to right. put it simply. And, and right. navigating myself out of that was a little bit more of a challenge. I will say coming out of it, I was, I was, NBC was a wonderfully supportive environment. and They always wanted to help me find that next challenge. It, again, sort of landed organically when we had these verticals, uh, sort of cross-platform outlets that were reporting specifically on American communities. There was one devoted to Black Americans, one devoted to Latino Americans. There was not one for Asian Americans. And when I started poking around, I was like, we can build this. We can do this. And so I launched NBC Asian America when I was there, which was, for me, both a joy to kind of build something just I'd never done that before. That was the new challenge. But it also gave me experience across digital and broadcast and online. We were just kind of building and creating and telling stories that weren't being told anywhere else. And I finally had enough juice in my career where I could say, these are the kind of stories I want to tell. These are the places I want to put my time and resources. And I'm really proud of what that became. I handed that off when I ended up leaving NBC a couple of years later, and it has only taken off since then. It's just, it's an incredible platform that's grown many fold, even in the years since I've left. But that gave me the first experience of like, oh, this is what it's like to build something, um, mm. something I can create and form and, and make into a vision that only I have in my head right now. And that was also formative. But I also realized it's not what I wanted to do, right? Part of this is the process of ruling out, okay, this is not what I want to do forever and ever. And so from there, I, I ended up going to ABC, where I was helping them to build their live stream channel and anchoring, which was something I'd never done before. And we just did hours and hours and hours of totally unscripted, no prompter, sometimes very little notice on what we were going to be covering, anchored coverage of live breaking news. 
and that really uh, is that how it works is breaking news generally like that it's on the fly no well i mean some of it is a, a lot of it is because it's breaking and you're there to kind of learn what you can as you <laughs> okay. go and communicate it to the audience <laughs> right. right but um on the live stream side in particular because we were just trying to respond to the news as it happened and this was in in um 2015 it really became sort of full-time political coverage, right? There were- Yeah, I was about to say, it's not lost on me. This timeline aligns with Donald Trump deciding- Absolutely. It was just full-time, this candidate speaking here, this person's giving a press conference there. There was a lot of other news in in the midst of all that as well, but it was also the first years, you know, we covered that election. I anchored on election night. I got to sit in a Times Square studio and say out loud, Donald J. Trump is the next president of the United States. It's not a sentence I ever thought I'd utter in my lifetime, but you know- there on my reel. And it burns into your memory, apparently, if you can repeat the same sentence as long later. You don't forget saying something like that out loud. No. Um, but it was also a valuable experience for me, right? Anchoring and, and realizing this is where we can build an audience. This is how I can help to um, not just participate in the conversation, but help to shape the conversation from that chair. Did you find that, um, so you're talking about developing skills and ruling things out. Did you find that before this opportunity, you said you were good at writing, you obviously figured out what to do in dangerous places. Did you figure out how to speak on the fly or did this force you that skill in real time? It's a very different skill than writing than, you know, all these other things you're mentioning. It is a very different skill. It is a very different skill. I think I have, uh, I have a little bit, some of it is, some of it is inherent. You, you can do it or you can't. A lot of it is practiced. I worked very, very hard, especially as a journalist, right? Because you cannot just share your thoughts. You can't just say what you think or share an opinion. You have to be very edited. You have to be very restrained. You have to be very careful with what you say because people are turning to you as a credible source of information. And that enormous responsibility was something I carried every single day. And I think it does go back to something my father used to teach me, which um, you know, my, my dad read a lot of philosophy growing up. He always guided us towards books and literature when we were asking him about you know, life questions and that kind of thing. And um, he always quoted Bertrand Russell. He was one of his favorite philosophers. And he said one of the, the definitions of, of a good life that he loved from Bertrand Russell was that a good life is one that is uh, guided by wisdom, but inspired by love. And it was just the, the idea that your heart will guide you, you know, will help you kind of form your path and your vision. But it's the wisdom, it's the knowledge, it's knowing what you're talking about and using your words carefully that that helps you to also walk that path in the way you're, you're intended to. And I always carried that with me. My father's a man, incredibly erudite, is a man of few words, and, and he spoke very carefully with us always because he knew the weight of those words. He knew the value of those words. And I carry that into the anchor chair because every single word that you choose matters. Every single word that mm. you utter matters. And especially at that time in what was a raucous presidential campaign, it mattered. It mattered a lot. And not to mention probably the subtext that as somebody who was a brown woman presenting and reporting, you also, whether you like it or not, have the responsibility of a community on your shoulders, then, you know, you may not want to represent all Muslims, all brown people, all this, all that, but that's a fight that I'm constantly fighting and probably a fight that you're constantly fighting. Like we, I'm not speaking on behalf of everybody. I'm of this community. And I know that people want to see more folks from this community. 
Um, so you're like, um, unfortunately, waving this flag, whether you like it or not, and constantly have to kind of remind yourself to, to be responsible so that you're representing them in a good light. Yeah, I think the fight, the fight for or the challenge ahead is sort of for all of us to be granted the same space to be complicated and to be messy and to be as diverse and, and different from one another as any other group. I think that's, that's the real challenge, right? Is that I've had a lot of people over the years pass judgment, say things about the way that I practice my faith, right? You, well, you, you don't cover your head, so you're not really Muslim. You know, you, you, you didn't marry a Muslim, so you're not really Muslim. You don't do X, Y, or Z, so you're not really Muslim. And I realized over time, like, it's not up to you. It's not up to you to tell me what I am or what I am not, right? That is, right. that's up to me. And I think that's, that is the challenge ahead for, for all underrepresented or marginalized groups is to be granted that same space to be complicated in the ways that we all know that we are, but covering, you know, doing the work at that time, you have to remember, you know, the, the Muslim ban was one of the first things that candidate Trump proposed. And that was met with great support among a lot of primary voters at the time, right? He, He said that as a candidate and it was not disqualifying. And one of the struggles for me was to cover that as a story on its face, underlined and driven by the facts that I knew to be true, and then to go home and have uh, very real conversations that I knew a lot of other Muslim families were having about what do we tell our kids? You know, um, should we be worried about this? I remember at some point there was talk about a registry. You remember this came up? This is so bizarre. And it was so bizarre. My husband and I had a very real conversation at the kitchen table after we put the kids down to sleep one night, right? Which was, what do we, what do we do? What would we do? Which was a conversation I know a lot of other families were having across the country. And so there, we did have this, you know, I did have this sort of dual challenge, I think, in maintaining my credibility and my view and my work as a journalist, but also understanding what what really hundreds of thousands, millions of people were kind of experiencing in real time in their homes because I was experiencing it too. And did you do you believe that you were able to understand the challenge you had in maintaining your credibility? Because as you mentioned, you're married to a Caucasian man who's also in journalism and he produces his own work. Do you believe that maybe his work is met with less uh, I don't know if restriction is the right word, but more credibility more immediately. So I think um, there is this question about objectivity in journalism. We have this conversation a lot. The idea that the default in our industry, which has for generations been older white men, right? They have been the voices deemed credible and trustworthy. That's changed a lot, but it's still the default, right? That's sort of the defining characteristic that they get the default assumption of objectivity in their reporting and everyone else has to kind of prove it, right? Mm. Prove to me that you don't have a bias. Prove to me that you're objective in this. Mm. I think that has changed a lot in the industry, but it's still an active conversation. Um, And we see it. You see it. There's been local news stories and newsrooms across the country over the last few years about black journalists not being able to cover BLM protests. Um, Mm. I've had it come up uh, in conversations in past jobs too, about do you feel comfortable covering this is, the subtext to that was, is this something you can, you think you can cover fairly? Um, Mm -hmm. I reject that 
idea wholesale. I, I just do because I bring my whole self to this job, my whole self. That is every lived experience I've ever had, every story I've ever reported on, every person I've ever interviewed, all of that informs. It does not influence, but it does inform the way that I practice my journalism today and the kinds of questions that I ask. And I argue to this day, every journalist before me has done the same. If you believe that Walter Cronkite was not bringing his lived experience to the stories that he supported and the questions that he asked and the way that he framed his stories, we disagree. Right. Right. It's not like there's an inherent type of person that is an arbiter, that is more fair, that is more just. And that's kind of the subtext of that is like, do you have it in you to be as fair as just? And you're like, well, you know, like I'm a human. I have bias. I I believe certain things about the Muslim ban when I report on them. I'm going to tell you facts. Correct. But I, I certainly believe certain things. I'm not here and to actually, tell you what I'm, I think, right? I'm not here to tell you I'm what here, I think. But, you, I'm but here that's to tell not you always true, right? That's not always true. Like how do you how do you take what I – my observation now is – some journalists are trying really hard to be objective all the time. Other journalists are like, I have this platform and it's great responsibility. So I'm going to say what I think. And it, it, that's my observation from somebody who's not in the industry. Is it the case that in the industry there's a bifurcation in kind of goals and ambitions or is some want to be more personalities, whereas others want to be more, known more as journalists? Maybe some are more on the entertainment side, others more on the journalism side. Like, How do you decipher that anecdote from me through your journalism lens. Yeah, I can't speak to how other people self-identify, but to me, there's a very clear line between what I'd call opinion journalism, right? Which is, and I think people who participate in it would argue, it's based on facts, it's based on analysis, but they're there to tell you what they think. They're there to argue a Mm. point, right? They're prosecuting a case. And people who feel it's their job to just present to you the facts. Um, and And I say that not it's not to pass judgment. I think both are valuable in in the spaces that they occupy in terms of information and, and helping to inform and empower people. But I have always viewed it as my responsibility to help people to make better decisions about their lives. And I think I can do that best when I tell you what I know to be true. Here's an unequivocal fact. Here is the evidence behind it. Here are the sources that I talk to. Here's what I know to be true. What you do with that is entirely up to you. I will say where there is another defining line for me is when it comes to not partisan politics or anything like that, because when it comes to those things, I don't have a side. I really don't. But when it comes to things like decency or like humanity, Mm. I will always be on the side of decent and I will always be on the side of humanity. And I think anyone who's watched my coverage of, especially when kids are involved, kids who I believe are always innocent parties in all of these stories that we cover, I will always come down on the side of who's looking out for them. And sometimes it, there are it's, indecent it's hard, and yeah. inhumane things done. And I, I feel very safe and I feel very comfortable saying that it's inhumane or indecent. Right. Yeah. It has to be just the good moral compass that you have. Because like, if we go back to the election in 2016, I remember when you know certain communities were called rapists. Right, like all men of this community are rapists. Like, what? It's <laughs> a terrible thing to say. That's you know, it's such also, a power, powerful position. It's terrible, right? Factually inaccurate. More yeah. importantly, right? It's, it's a it's it's terrible. And so, um, how did you make your way to PBS? Is PBS what came next? And by that point, had you established your position as a broadcast journalist? I had hundreds and hundreds of hours of anchoring under my belt by that point. This was in 2018. Well, and um, and P- 
PBS called and, and we started a conversation. Um, and for me, one of the challenges of being in the role I was at ABC, which was, I had an incredible team, just like the best, the best folks to work with all the time, but I was tethered to the desk. I had, I had a really tough time leaving because they always might need me to run into the studio because of breaking news. I got out a little bit. I was able to go um, do my first documentary that I, that I did when I was there. I spent about over four or five trips. I reported on four families who lived in the Texas county that had the highest support for President Trump in the 2016 election, built a relationship with these people over the course of a year, and we put together a documentary. Um, But that was really, it was very limited to kind of targeted trips out. I couldn't get out to report, and I I missed that. I did. I really, I love being out and about. I love being in people's homes. I love being someplace new. And NewsHour offered the chance to do both. They said, we need you to be a correspondent. We need to go out and report, but we need you to be able to fill in at the anchor desk because the then anchor, Judy Woodruff, was traveling quite a bit as well, and they needed someone they could consistently rely on. So it was kind of a perfect alignment of all the things I loved in in my job, all the things I wanted to do in my job coming together. It meant a big move. My husband and I were living in New York. We had our two daughters and a dog. Can't leave them out. And uh, we had to move down to Washington to take the job, but it it was worth it. It all kind of came together in the right way at the right time. And right after you moved, if this is 2018, I mean, shortly after the world shut down, you're probably reporting from home. Is that right? That is correct. And I'll also say, here's another chance for me to shout out my wonderful husband. When we moved down, he was at the New York Times in New York. And when we moved down, he said, hey, it's a big move. It's a big job. It's going to be a big change for the girls. What if I took a step back from my career and just went full time with the girls for a little while to help make this transition? So they're settled and you're settled and we can find a home and all of those things. And it was the single greatest gift he has ever given me and my family and our girls. And it's probably the only thing that got us through the pandemic whole and sane and still happily married because he, you know, they were in remote schooling. They were learning on laptops in our kitchen every day. And our little one was in preschool. You cannot run preschool on a laptop. So he was basically homeschooling her all the time. And on top of that, my workload went like that, right? Suddenly I had to do 10 times more work and, you know, technical feats at home to try to get on the air. And it was, it was intense. It was intense, but we made it through and we are people of privilege and options, right? And we were safe and we're okay. But like a lot of families, yeah, and a lot of journalists, we were living through the same story that we were covering at the time. Of all the episodes I've done, of all the professionals I've spoken to, and of all the professional women I know, that is the first time I've heard that story. Stop. And I live in a very progressive world. Meaning it's the first time but you've had a husband who's a, taken a step back a man, full-time. Great career, yep. full-time with the kids for whatever period of time. And it turned out actually... I could totally understand why it would be the best decision ever because when COVID hit, like yeah. having somebody committed to the – I mean, we we were like in a pod with our nanny. We're like, parents, we love you guys. <laughs> Siblings, we love you guys. But like we cannot give this lady up. So this is, like <laughs> who, we, this is who we're going to see on a daily basis. Wow, that's that's incredible. Um, but also it probably speaks to a bit of the flexibility that in, in – you know, journalism is creative, but it's also th- – there are a lot of different skills required yeah. and it's a type of job where – 
maybe you could carve your own path, right? It's not like there are other professions that are very kind of dictated in terms of how they're performed. Yeah. So that, that's so cool. That's literally the first time I've ever heard that. That's wild. Well, I hope he inspires more fathers <laughs> to consider taking this step. Yeah. It's still, you know, he's still, he's in the minority everywhere we go, right? And there's still those days when like the doctor will call me first or the school will call me first or, or things like that, even though he is listed as the primary parent. Like I'm learning so much about- They just ignore both. it? <laughs> They're just like, they assume this can't be right, right? Like the dad would not be the primary contact for these things. That's so wild. It's a lot. It's, it's, a, it's a lot for him. And he is, here's another confession. He is way better at it than I was. <laughs> I know what you mean. Way better. I overmanaged everything. I was always, especially when I was home with them on leave, I was like scheduling everything and like speaking to them in three different languages and trying to, you know, I was doing too much. I was doing too much all the time and it wasn't great for them. It certainly wasn't great for me. He is so consistent and patient and incredible and just wonderful with them. And I also think about how revolutionary this is for them, right? They're two young girls biracial girls growing up in America who see their mom go out the door every day to do her job that she loves to do and know that dad is the one who packs my lunch and dad is the one who puts the band-aids on the boo-boos and dad is the one who takes me to my ballet rehearsals. Like that is, it is formative and defining for the way that they see the world and their options ahead too. And I love that. Yeah, without a doubt, without a question. That's so cool. So so today is he the primary caretaker as, as well, it seems like? It, sorry, I didn't That's catch so that cool. last part. What would you say? He, he's still the primary caretaker today? He is. Yeah, he is. I mean, so cool. he got us through the pandemic. It's continued to work. And our thing is, like, if it's working, especially if it's working for the kids and for the family, we're going to keep doing it. And um, it makes it makes all of this possible. Like, it makes – uh, it makes our lives so much better. It makes our family so happy and so whole. It is a blessing and it, it's, it's a privilege. Yeah. It's a privilege that we were able to make that choice. Without I know that. I have reported enough on childcare in America to know it's like impossible choices all the time, but it is working and I am so incredibly grateful for it. Yeah, no, definitely. I, th- I, th- I could see, I could definitely see the advantages like um, in that same TikTok I was telling you about where I talked about having kids in my thirties. Yeah. One of the cons is that my husband and I are both in the thick of building our careers, right? We are both right. grinding all the time, but our kids are in the thick of what they'll need from us physically, maybe not yes. emotionally at their respective ages of like, you know, 10 months, two and four. Right. Yeah, so like we're physical just physical labor oh, at that time. It's really entirely that's physical. Part. Yeah. Entirely physical. I'm putting somebody to sleep. Somebody else needs help with the bathroom. Somebody has any in. Somebody found the Skittles collection. Like there's always something you're you know, like, How do you like have this PM. much energy actually? I'm I'm in absolute all right now. Like this is amazing. Oh. You should be napping. No, it's, it's like <laughs> <laughs> in a few years. We'll get there. We'll get there when we get there. But like it's, it's really that I would say that's probably one of the harder parts is you're just you're on. You're on during the day. You're on at night. And yeah. I'm back online after they're asleep, right? So you're just like constantly on. Yeah. And it's not a complaint. It's just an observation. Like I chose this. I chose everything about 100%. it. I'm incredibly privileged. We have uh, – the, the thing we spend the most money on is childcare. Yeah. Honestly, probably more than mortgage if I did the math. Maybe similar. Like – Yeah. So we, we, we're also people of privilege and we, we made certain choices. Yeah. But, um, but those stresses are the same. And this is, I think, where it's all, you know – 
it's to different degrees, but especially during the pandemic, like there was no, you were always on, right? It was up in the morning. The kids needed you, even though they're, you know, Paul's overseeing them most of the day, but mom's home. Why would I not go talk to her? Why would I not go get a hug? You know, kids are fighting. You got to step in. It's, It's all of that stuff, getting them through the morning, then focusing on work, but then they come in for a, I'm not going to say no to a hug if they come in in the middle of it. Why would I say that? You know? So it was constantly right. kind of switching your brain back and forth between the person that you are at work and the mom that you are at home and then just kind of collapsing into bed and starting over again the next day. Right. We, we joked during the pandemic that every day was like a different version of Tuesday. It's just the same thing over and over <laughs> and over again. And it was. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, um, our second child. So one kid ago, um, the pandemic lockdown happened in March and we delivered him in April. Oh and that was gosh. just like, it was the time when we thought that bacteria was live for 17 days. And I, right. I took a pen to the hospital with me to sign forms. My husband was booted as soon as the baby came out of my body from the hospital. And like, oh I never gosh. saw a single nurse the whole stay. The only person I saw was the person who brought food into my room. And that was it? would just, maybe I saw nurses. It might've, might've been one nurse. I don't remember. It's all, it's all blurry. But the person who brought food into my room and he would just leave it at the door and leave. Pediatrician who came in for the postpartum visit, mm-hmm. they rolled my baby next door, called me from next door. was like, yep, we're doing the check. Kid seems okay. Great. You know, oh expect the kid gosh. back in 10 minutes. Just like such a wild, wild, wild That's time. crazy. Also, cause I remember yeah. the angels after I delivered each other, the, the, the nurses were like, they were the angels. Unbelievable. Um, it was, I, I can't even imagine not having that support. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was, it was just wild. Like I, a funny anecdote is I actually, um, I'm very close to my mom and sister and I sent them a Zoom link for when I was giving birth, as crazy as it sounds, because <laughs> they were in the room with me the first time. But I sent my like universal Zoom link, which is the link we use for like our company all hands, <laughs> like our leadership <laughs> meetings, because I'm known to just have my one link, which I treat like an office. Thank God I had that baby on a weekend, because without question, somebody would have popped anyone it else me on the, the link. link. Was there? Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thank God. It was a week. I always laugh about that, because like that, people are like, why? what's with this one link? I'm like, it just makes life easier. It's my link. You come in, you come out. I'll always be in that link. It Anyways, makes life that's easier here nor there. until you're delivering. It a makes baby. life easier. It don't have. It's not public spectacle. <laughs> Your colleagues do not want to see that. Um, but it's funny. I actually, actually, one of my friends is at Washington Post, and I did a, a piece for the Washington Post during it. Actually, vlogged as I was having the baby before I was having the baby and through labor and yada yada yada. Oh my god! Uh, but it was really a spectacular time. So, so you're right. Like it doesn't matter who you were, or what your role was. There was just this added layer of stress and trying to navigate yeah. and figure out life on top of all the things we were doing. And so tell us now, um, what what do you do today, Amna? Today in my role at work? Today, what do you do? I yeah. am uh, the recently named co-anchor of the PBS NewsHour. Judy Woodruff stepped Which is down. The cr- like, this the is the top of the, of the poet hole, this right? Is, this is it. Yeah. So Jeff Bennett and I are co-anchors. <laughs> and this is, everyone asks, like, what is, what is it like? What is it like? This is it. This is This is the dream job. This is the... You're there. Yeah. Weird. <laughs> let, let's but take also, a moment. Soak that in. <laughs> look, here, You're there. The thing. I had a lot. There was so much anticipation about... It's, it's a big transition for an institution like this, right? This is the most trusted brand in news in the country, which is really saying something. And there's only ever been four people who've sat in the anchor chair. Wow. This institution that's been around since before I was born. And so we knew stepping into it, the transition was going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big deal for the audience, for the team, all of those things. But I will tell you, day one, when we sat down and and anchored our first show together, it got to the end and everyone was like, how does it feel? Why does it feel? Does it feel weird? Does it feel different? And I said, no, it actually strangely 
felt totally normal. Like it felt Mm. like I was right where I was supposed to be. And I felt ready. And I think for the first time in my career, I was able to say that because all of the other jobs and all of the other challenges and all of those experiences led me to this place that I could have never imagined myself being 20 years ago when I started. Never would have imagined. Incredible. Yeah. It's incredible. And to to be able to like really what I heard was a few things hearing about your life. Like A, your dad's message of do what you love, but be wise. <laughs> worked. It resonated. You're doing what you love. You're, you're measured in what you say. You're doing what you love. Two, um, there's something to be said about imposter syndrome, right? Like you yeah. must have felt like an imposter at ABC, especially after September 11th. You, you must have felt like a bit of an imposter, even in Pakistan, your own home country, when you're trying to figure out how to navigate, how to report on war. And I'm speaking for you, so please stop me at any point. But really what I heard most importantly is that you stepped into the seat and you didn't feel like an imposter. It was right. You're, you're the right person for the job. I feel, I, I will tell you, even now I have to stop and hesitate before I say that also, because I think we, I was also raised to be humble. You, you don't, you don't brag about what you're doing. You just do it, right? When you do a good deed, you don't tell a lot of people about it. You just do it. And, and modesty and humility were also things that were taught to us very early. But I realized over the course of my career, you have to reach a point at some point where you can say out loud, I'm good at what I do and I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Like I'm meant to be here. I am right where I belong. And I think when you spend a lot of time in institutions and in spaces where there aren't a lot of people like you in the room or haven't been a lot of people like you that have come through before, it's a difficult thing to say because you're not sure you believe it yourself. It wasn't Mm. until recently that I believed it for myself, that I'm Mm. right where I'm supposed to be. And anyone else who wants to consider this path and who finds that space to be able to take up, you know, to have a seat at the table, to walk through that door, whatever metaphor you want to use, you're right where you're supposed to be. Like your voice belongs there. You are in the space you're meant to occupy. It's incredible. It's it's so cool to hear. I have a very tactical question. What does that mean for your brand? Like, are you on a roadshow trying to prove <laughs> that you are just as good? Like, how do you, how do you tactically do this? What is my brand? I don't even know. Help me define my brand. You have to have a brand. Your your brand, your, you have a brand. It's like, yeah, just like working mom trying to, trying to hold it all together and do something good in the world before her days run out. Uh, That's it. Like, how can we fit that on a bumper sticker? I don't know. I, I don't feel the need to have to explain myself to other people the way I did before. I don't feel the need to prove to people that I can do this job because I really believe the work speaks for itself. And we have the benefit of having a show every night. I I practice my craft every evening. People are welcome to show up. You can watch the news hour every night. You can stream it live on YouTube. Like watch what we do. I feel it speaks for itself. Um, But in terms of, you know, I, I, the whole brand idea, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know what that is. I, I don't know how I, how I would even define it for myself. What I really do try to practice every day is I wish I could even move the camera around. I have little, um, post-its all over my wall and I had this in my home office too, just like little things that speak to me in a way that they ground me and they guide me. And when you're feeling really lost out there in the world, you know, it gives you a little something to hang on to. Um, 
and I have, I have this a thing. few of those. I use yeah. my label maker, by the way, on my on my monitor. The oh, that's things smart. I need to remember. Sometimes I scribble it down. I'm like, what did I write? My handwriting's so bad. But like, I have totems. I have things I, I carry with me. So Ben Franklin had this thing. He had a practice every day. He was so diligent in what he did. One of the things was he woke up every morning and he asked himself a question: What good shall I do today? And I wrote that mm. down because I thought if you wake up every day with the intention of just saying whether it is big or small, like what good shall I do? Is it a kindness to someone else? It is a big piece of journalism. Is it some larger exercise? What what small piece of good can I do today? If I can practice yep. that each and every day, like that to me is a life well lived. Like I'm well aware of yeah. the fact that our time here is very limited. You have to make the most of it. If I can do that every single day, I think I'll be happy at the end of it all. This was so cool. It was awesome to hear about your journey. I'm so thrilled about this next step for you. For folks who want to follow your journey, Amna, where, where can they find you? Oh, man. You can follow me on uh, Instagram. I'm Amna on PBS. On Twitter, my handle is I am Amna Navaz. And of course, folks should follow the news hour. We're all over the place. We practice great journalism every day. I have incredible colleagues who do wonderful storytelling. And yeah, check out what we do. And thank you so much for your time. This was so